Welcome to Sports Lit. I'm Neil Acharya. And I am Nathan Sager. Today on the program, Howard Bryant, a senior writer at ESPN since 2007, sports correspondent for NPR's Weekend Edition since 2006, and guest editor of Best American Sports Writing 2017. Today he will discuss Ricky, the life and legend of an American original, a 380-page biography of Ricky Henderson, who scored the most runs and stole the most bases in Major League Baseball history. It was published on June 7th by Mariner Books. Ask me about Ricky Henderson, and what I remember is what a pitcher might tell you about him. It comes in flashes, and then he's gone. A baseball card, Ricky in a Yankee uniform. Then he's in Oakland for the second time. I was too young, young to remember the first. Just a few months into that second tenure, already having broken the single-season stolen base mark, he's torching the Blue Jays in the 1989 ALCS, and I mean torching. Yes, he's making the Jays look like a triple-A team. You've heard of great moments in sport being referred to uh, by the shot or the comeback. Well, Ricky, when he got the all-time stolen base mark in Major League Baseball, that was marked by the speech. In 1991, when passing Lou Brock for the all-time mark, which stood at 938, Ricky, well, let's just say he wasn't modest in his moment of glory. And that stayed with him. Canadian baseball fans will remember Ricky from the 1993 World Series won by the Blue Jays. And like he always did, he set the table, this time in the bottom of the ninth for Joe Carter's home run. Right off the bat to start that inning, he called time, and he threw Phillies reliever Mitch Williams out of any rhythm he'd have, and he never regained it. And then he took first base. Now about speeches, he had one at that 1993 parade. He got to the mic, and when they asked him about his strategy, he said it was to be patient. And that's humble, right? Well, yeah. And then Ricky dropped a Rickyism. I know Mitch Williams cannot throw me that many strikes. And he couldn't. Ricky walked on four balls. Now, if you listen to the commentary, when the next batter, Devon White, is up, color commentator Tim McCarver is focused strictly on Ricky and how he's taken Mitch Williams out of the game. How Mitch Williams can't use his high leg kick for velocity as it allow as it would allow Ricky to run. Instead, it was a slide step, and it wasn't working. So not being a true seam head, I forgot about Ricky Henderson, uh, as I'd kind of forgotten about baseball in the years after the Jays were, uh, be, you know, were being sold to Interbrew and the subsequent strike of 1994. And then another flash, 1999. Ricky's still playing? Oh, yeah, he is, and he's in the NLCS, or is he? No, he's playing cards in the clubhouse with Bobby Bonilla while the Mets are getting burned by the Atlanta Braves. Another moment that stayed with him for the worse. Now as for the better, that's what really counts. In all, the man played from 1979 to 2003, four decades, and finished as a 44-year-old with over 3,000 hits, 2,000 runs scored, 
2,000 walks, and 1,406 stolen bases. Again, the all-time mark that he still holds. In 2009, he was inducted into the Cooperstown uh, Baseball Hall of Fame on a first ballot induction. And if a GM called him today, Nate? Ricky would say that Ricky could help, still help a team. That, <laughs> is tr- that is the truth. He would say that. So what did I know about him other than those flashes and those flashy numbers? Not a whole lot. In fact, I don't think many people really know a whole lot about the man. And I'm not sure I really know that much more about him as a person after reading nearly 400 pages about his life in this uh, biography. But through the meticulous writing and meticulous research of Howard Bryant, I know the context of his motivations, the context of his times, and why he was so enigmatic, and what drove him to be the best, which seemed to be about the money, and may have always been about the money, but over time... It really seemed to be about about just wanting to compete and be at his best on the diamond. Nate, for a man who stole more bases and scored more runs than any other player in Major League Baseball history, we don't really hear about him in the same way we hear about some of the other greats of his era, like Tony Gwynn or Cal Ripken. Now, there may be a, a number of different reasons for that. Uh, in the case of Tony Gwynn, of course, he had died, and people tend to talk about people... Um, you know, almost in a saint-like manner after they've passed on. But really, Ricky just seems to be in his own space, like always. Um, how do we put his, uh, his accomplishments into perspective beyond the eye test, meaning in the Moneyball era? Well, so you want some numbers we can understand in a 2022 context. Mm. But, but wait a minute, Neil. You may not have heard how the war between the Commonwealth of Old Time Stats and the legit Republic of Sabersburg ended. We won. What's that uh, three-letter chant I hear? OBP. OBP. Yeah. Uh, uh, now people, there's the there's the metrics and the evaluative tools to understand just how good Ricky Henderson was. And I'll briefly say that, you know, like I say, that that culture war, it's over. We, I mean, the smart fan understands that analytics is reinforcing what many old school baseball folk have applied for eons and it's to uh, channel our Perdita Felician episode from last year. It's filling your life with foolishness to get triggered by mentions of launch angle and exit velocity. You know, thinking that the angle, distance and speed a batted ball travels is irrelevant. Imagine Ted Williams specifically talked about all of that decades before it was quantifiable and easily shareable with the public now that's not to say i'm you know uh, you know uh, simping for the current state of play in major league baseball or manfred ball but all what i do with those complaints is kind of put them under the heading of i think people are maybe getting mad about the wrong things anyways this statistical revolution in baseball has led to the development of one stat to rule them all called wins above replacement acronymed war uh it, nate sorry war is that what it's good for yeah i really think tolstoy should have stuck with that original title war is an approximation all statistics are approximations of a player or pitcher's total contribution to their team and it works out to how many wins they were worth to their team over and above what a some got you know a minor league player would have done with the same amount of playing time for instance, right now, the New York Yankees, you know, slugger Aaron Judge already has seven war this season. He's been worth 
seven more wins to the Yankees than they would have if they had put some guy who should be in triple-A or double-A ball in his spot. Now, of course, baseball players are, you know, flesh and blood, and they play an incredibly long season, and people wear and people wear out, especially players who played through the 1970s and 80s in the concrete donut era of stadium design with, with AstroTurf. So I thought, you know, how many players would be in a 100-war club, worth 100 wins to their teams over their entire career? And what if we just started it at, when, at the start of the 1960s when baseball starts expansion and they're about a decade and a half down the road from integration when Jackie, Jackie Robinson in Brooklyn, Larry Doby in Cleveland, respectively, were the first black players in each of those leagues, the first since, you know, Moses Fleetwood Walker in the 1880s. Just in the last 60 years, how many players in that 100 war club? And I'm talking everyday players, not including pitchers for the, for the purposes, purposes of this. There's only five. Now, obviously, since we're discussing a biography of Ricky Henderson, he is one of them. And the other two who came preceded him into the majors, Joe Morgan and Mike Schmidt, are respectively considered the best to ever do it at their respective positions. Both of them won multiple MVP awards. Ricky Henderson only won one. Interesting enough, Joe Morgan was a teammate of Ricky Henderson's during Morgan's final season of the majors. And like Ricky, he was another Oakland guy who was also shaped by the Great Migration, spending his formative years in the South before his family moved to Northern California to, to find more greater opportunities. And of course, the two who followed Ricky Henderson have finished with over 100 war in their careers are Barry Bonds and Alex Rodriguez. And if you've hung in with us this long, you know who those dudes are. But circling back to the narrative of the book, Howard sort of has broken up the history of Major League Baseball, maybe starting from the start of the 20th century into three different eras. Immigration era through the first half of the 20th century, the aforementioned integration era, and then comes the economic era. And it begins right at the intake point for Ricky Henderson into the baseball industry. At this point, you know, baseball has been integrated for 30 years, and there's a realization that any serious sport in North America needs to have black excellence as part of the entertainment package. Although oftentimes they had inst those inst sports institutions really only want it on their terms. Now that economic era, like I said, it, right around the mid-70s, in late 1975, in fact, when Ricky Henderson was a senior in high school, just about to turn 17 years old, comes the shock event that changed the economics of baseball. The Peter Seitz decision by an arbitrator, which brought in free agency. A few months later, Ricky Henderson puts a signature on his first pro contract, and he's off to, off to begin his minor league matriculation with the Boise Hawks. Obviously, now that players can play out their contract and sign anywhere they want, salaries start to skyrocket. And it takes a few years for the media and the fans and probably the teams to get their mind wrapped around it. People don't like hearing that they're living in a revolution. And maybe that sort of pushback on that, that affects what the audience for MLB hears about Ricky Henderson for maybe the first you know, 12, 13 years of his career, Neil. Yeah, I mean, just to reiterate what you say and expound on it, Ricky was a mercenary and um, in a time when he could be, and that um, that never actually really changed. But what changed was the times. Early in his career, as you mentioned, 1979 to the early 90s, 
it was a time when the fans and media still had those romantic attachments uh, from yesteryear and they were transitioning to what we see now which is fans and the media are basically armchair gms they're they're putting themselves in a front office position as shot callers they're sports business people and due to that some of the disdain for Ricky LaPasse can be understa- understood in a new way. He can be understood in a new way. Um, though he's not the only pro athlete to be misunderstood, both rightly and wrongly. Yeah. Now, statistically in baseball, there is no real good comparison for Ricky Henderson. For a real comp, I have to take it to another sport. Uh, Randy Moss, the, you know, the great NFL wide receiver who played most of his career with my Minnesota Vikings. He and Ricky, the, the similarities, I started like, they're both huge talents who sh- were prodigies in sports that they probably loved, but sports that weren't necessarily their first love. Ricky wanted to play for the Oakland Raiders. Randy Moss loved basketball. He was the state player of the year in basketball in high school, even though his point guard was Jason Williams, who went on to start <laughs> in the NBA. They both had the drive to be great, but there's kind of a, a two-way disconnect between them and a hyper-majority white sports media and its audience. And in their teens and 20s, neither of them are really over-interested in explaining themselves. And as a result, the media chooses maybe not to see that they do want the sweat, not just the glory. So there's a void there. And when that happens, unfortunately, and, and I think it still happens today, that void gets filled in with the dreaded character questions. And it becomes a vicious circle of mutual frustrations that can follow a player through his whole career. And some, and they sort of have to deal with it. In Ricky Henderson's case, he's, he figured it out in his, I guess, his second act after he's done playing. Randy Moss, of course, he's transitioned into actually being a, a TV personality. Now, segueing to Howard Bryant, you know, Howard writes in this book that for most of Ricky Henderson's career, there was no question that who held the lens mattered. He, but he wanted to, you know, put Ricky Henderson through his lens. Now, Howard Bryant has won the Casey Award for North America's Baseball Book of the Year twice. And both of those award-winning books kind of look at black baseball history and black inclusion in baseball and or exclusion. The first was Shut Out, a story of race in baseball in Boston, which came out in 2002. And that, of course, Howard is a Boston native, and he's, of course, writing about how the Boston Red Sox resisted integrating in the 1940s. They might have had Jackie Robinson or Willie Mays on their team. They chose not to. And, geez, shockingly, it took them until 2004 to win a World Series. And his other one, Casey Award-winning book, was the Last Hero, A Life of Henry Aaron in 2010. And that kind of uh, facilitates why we're doing this book today, because when Henry Aaron's energy returned to the earth last year, uh, Bryant wrote a column, as as anyone who has written a been a biographer of a famous person would, sharing, you know, sort of the inside baseball about how he sold Aaron on the project and what, what really, you know, made the switch come on for Henry Aaron was... When Howard says, this is going to be a big biography, I think it ran to more than 600 pages. And, you know, baseball's all about putting up the numbers. So <laughs> knowing that, knowing what, you know, Howard had done to write a defi- try to write a definitive biography of Henry Aaron, we anticipated there might be something similar with a Ricky Henderson bi- biography when we saw it was coming out. And we are here for it, Neil. Yes, thank you, Nate. And uh, coming up after the break, the man you were just talking about, Howard Bryant,
to discuss Ricky, the life and legend of an American original from Mariner Books. And we're back with Howard Bryant. We've been looking forward to this interview about his book, Ricky, for some time now. And Nate, uh, without further ado, start us off. Indeed. Thanks for joining us today, Howard. Wanted Welcome, to ask, uh, between sort of what's termed Ricky style, you know, vanishing from baseball and his hometown Oakland Athletics, the team he played most of his career for, being a, this sort of franchise that's in limbo, why, why is it timely to uh, bring out a major biography of him now? Well, number one, thanks for having me on. I'm always good to talk about Ricky. It's, um, I appreciate the, the interest in, it, in, in him. I think that the, the piece of this that I, I never time these things. I don't know what they're timed to or connected to. I know a lot of times publishers will say, well, maybe we can connect this to whatever future event as a sales hook. To me, it really was what I was interested in at that time, simply because I had felt like there was a, a big hole missing here in terms of you write the books that you want to read about. And that's generally how, how I operate. And I thought that it, it was interesting to think. I remember I was in Arizona with uh, Pedro Gomez, the late great uh, colleague who we worked at ESPN together for for years. And we were at the at the grotto one night in Old Town Scottsdale with a bunch of baseball hmm. people, and we were talking about how many baseball people could carry a full biography. How many guys out there had the 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 breath to do it? How many did have the impact on the record book? Had the impact on the game? Were representative of of themes outside of the game? And on top of that, how many people could you write about that? didn't that wouldn't require you using 60 percent of the book to talk about steroids it really the, the <laughs> list wasn't really as big as you'd think and and i think that i think it was just fortuitous that the book came out at a time when people are reassessing the game the way they are that they're looking at the players and now you have this movement in baseball that the game is too staid it's too boring let the kids play is the new slogan and that the, that base running is being obliterated, I'm sorry, it's being eliminated from the sport. And then you're looking at somebody like Ricky. Um, I remember we were talking about this as well, about records and which records were never going to be broken again. And obviously the first one that always comes to mind is no one's going to win 511 games the way Cy Young did. That one's never, ever. You can say that with a lot of confidence. And... But however, I don't think anyone's going to steal 1,406 bases either. And so Ricky really did sort of hit that high level, that top shelf of here's somebody who could carry a story from start to finish. And yeah, just to quickly give context, I think 40 years ago today during his record uh, base stealing season in 1982, Ricky Henderson got up on August 13th, International Left-Handers Day, and he had 107 <laughs> stolen bases. I looked it up this morning. The top four in all of Major League Baseball have 103. Uh, yeah, but it's, I also... it's incredible. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the things that he did, I mean, I think for me what was really illuminating in this in this book was, I mean, I think I went, you always go into a book, so organic. You go in with an idea, and then the book ends up not looking very much like it. You go back and look at your original proposal, and the book <laughs> is not really what it turns out to be. And that's appropriate because you have to do the work. But I think that 
people just aren't really aware of just how much he obliterated the record book. I mean, he's just what he did. You're just not going to see again, not just in the style and the way that he did it, but what he actually did. And he could have stole 140 bases in 82, but he jams his shoulder late in the season and only steals about 10 more bases. And so he was on pace 130. He, he had his eyes on 140, 145. <laughs> and, and, and you've done a lot of promotion for this book. What have you sort of learned from what people tend to ask about Ricky Henderson when, when you're promoting it? It's been really interesting. It's because every project comes with what you think the book is. I always say there are three stages to every book. Um, step one is the book belongs to you. Step two is the book belongs to the publisher. And then step three, the book belongs to the world. And generally speaking, what you think people are going to talk about, um, people have other, they have other viewpoints of it. They have other ideas about what they're interested in. And generally speaking, what people have been, the, the overarching theme with Ricky has been what you guys were talking about here, which was simply that, that they just don't play baseball like this anymore. They don't play baseball the way he played baseball. And that's been one of the major themes. Another one of the themes, of course, as I knew going in, was going to be the the Ricky Henderson legacy. The, the sorry, the legend of Ricky. How many stories were true? That you could just play true or false with Ricky. In fact, that was one of the things that I was going to do to have a lot of fun with the book going forward. I think I only do it once or twice in the book. Was I was going to have a section in every chapter, the true, true or false, because there were so many different stories that were apocryphal, and some of them were real, and it was the the approach for the project was to was to not care about it it wasn't to it wasn't to go into the book with a myth busting attitude it was more to say that here's a character who is so interesting that it's almost like the you know the man who shot liberty valance when the legend becomes fact print the legend that it's all the <laughs> same and some of these stories even if they're not true people like to tell them anyway knowing that they're not true because they're so good my question, uh, my question, Howard, goes back to what you just said in terms of the business of books, and and how does that process of you know the book belongs to you, and then step two, the book belongs to the to the publisher. How, I mean, the the public probably isn't aware of this, right? They're aware of step three, just what they read. But um, can you kind of explain that process and and what it's like for you to hand this off, and then it's in someone else's hands because you've done this many times, right? I think was this your tenth book? Yes. Yeah, it's 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 really hard in a lot of ways, and I think it's 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 not like newspaper reporting where that is a uh, an editor driven uh, process. You write the story, and then everybody's got their hands all over it, and mm -hmm. then it appears in the paper, and that's that. Um, ditto for magazines. Magazines are even more editor heavy. Books are writer heavy. Books are yours. You you are trusted and trusted by the publisher. It's it's a really sort of straightforward process in a lot of ways where you sign contract, they hand you money, you write book, and I'll see you later in a couple of years when you deliver a book and you just hope that it's it's good. And that's why writers go, you know, tear their hair out trying to make these projects what they want them to be because you really are sort of isolated in a lot of ways. And you 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 write this thing, you're not quite sure what it's gonna be, you you know, you get some guidance for the most part, but generally you're you're on your own. And you're you're fighting with yourself to make sure that you're telling the story that you want to tell especially like me when you come from newspapers and everything is about space constraint 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 we got to cut the news hole the news hole has you know is too small whereas here you actually get to explore 
and you get to go out and tell the story that you want to tell. And as we talk about books all the time, I always say that, you know, you never finish a book, you just surrender. At some point, the publisher says, all right, let's have it. And then you've got to give them the book. And so it's, it's really sort of once you hit that step two process, that's when things get really ugly for me. And you can mm -hmm. talk to my editors about it and they'll tell you this is where I go dark, mm -hmm. is that then the business of the of book publishing gets in and you're not really talking about the craft of the writing anymore. Now you've got deadlines in terms of who's got what, you know, what has to be in. Now you're talking about the cover and the fact that the title and the cover art don't belong to the to the writer. They belong to the publisher. So if they don't like your title, they can change it, even though you may love your title. Mm -hmm. All of those business things get involved and suddenly the book becomes a commodity. And it's a really it's it's my least favorite part of the process. And um, then when the book comes out, now you're completely freaked out because you can't change anything. It's between two covers. It's done. You're relieved that it's in stores and you get all that stardust, that goodness, hey, there's my book. But you also are getting the emails that, you know, you you spelled Bobby Mercer's name wrong in the <laughs> chapter, which I did. Hopefully we got it fixed for the next edition. And so all of those things, they they create their own different anxieties. And to me, I think... Step one is always fun, but step three is also great because once it's done, then it's not yours anymore. The people can do what they want with it. They can read it. They can toss it in the trash. They can ignore it. They can buy it for friends. And you have to sort of sit with the work that you did. And that can be very, very anxious, especially you, you have to be comfortable with what you did because there's no turning back. Did you have a different name for it? Yeah, I did. The original subtitle, the original subtitle of the book was Ricky Henderson and the Legend of Oakland, and the publisher hated it. The publisher didn't like it because the publisher thought that Oak, the word Oakland regionalized the book and made it too small when you, Ricky played for nine teams, so you want to make the book in its sales appeal as broad as possible. I understood that. I didn't really agree. But what it does is that one of the things that I've learned you can't do is you cannot write to a title because you don't have control over the title. You may feel like you're writing to a title. And what I mean by that is the title is sort of your North Star. It's like, this is really what the book is about. And then sales and marketing gets involved and they're like, yeah, we don't think this is a really good title. We're gonna you know, tell you to change the title. And so this book, as it, if, it is, if it is read along the, through the through line of Ricky Henderson and the Legend of Oakland, it explains why the, first, why the introduction in the first chapter is really all about Oakland. It's about the Great Migration. It's about, it's about the first several years of the, the first waves of African-Americans moving to Oakland from the South. It's really not that much about Ricky in those first chapters. And that was because during those early chapters, I was thinking about this book as a broader story about Oakland as well as about Ricky. And then it became much, much, much more narrow as a Ricky book itself. And 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 just one, I guess, last question on the business side of books um, mm -hmm. is, you know, uh, marketing. Do you, do, have you ever had to, with this book or other uh, books, have to kind of put your foot down when it comes to marketing and say, hey, this is not what this is about, or I don't like that idea, or do you even have that ability once it goes to the publisher? Because sometimes we know there there's, there's ideas in, in sales and marketing that, just, you know, don't apply to what the artist or the writer thinks. No, 100%. It happens all the time. Yeah. And, and, it, and it happens in so many different ways. And part of the reason is because it's inevitable. Nobody knows your work better than you. But yet you're not, unless you just, you know, it's, it's a double-edged sword. On the one hand, nobody knows your book better than you. On the other hand, do you really want to be doing somebody else's job as well? It's not my job to be 
doing the cover, you know, the, the back flap copy and the cover copy and and then also trying to to do the ad copy on top of that. I mean, that's really a lot of work. And it and, and the business has shifted so much that it's turned into that. So mm. as an as an author, especially in sports, because our Rolodexes are often bigger than the publishers, and they've got you out there doing the marketing on top of it as well. And it's just it, it really is a lot of work. And so the best the best case scenario is when you have a publisher that can take that stuff and speak in your voice mm. and really get, you know, try to sell the book the way you intended it. It n virtually never works out that way <laughs> because they're not sports people necessarily. So they're trying to sell a book that they may not really know the material. So it's really, really important to try to be on the same page with your team because when it, once you start going out there, you realize how much opportunity you miss if, you, if your team doesn't really know where to go to to move the book right and, and in terms of ricky too in this book right there's a you go you work really hard to kind of put ricky in context and make sure that he's getting respect in the Rickyisms and and separate the fact that some people may have um you know used the Rickyisms to kind of take them down a peg so i'm sure there's you know when you when you handed it off there was there's was probably yeah, some ideas deal. and i'm and <laughs> Neil, I'm glad you brought that up because that's a that's a huge piece of this. And where that piece fits in is if you're lucky in choosing who does the book. Now, you, sometimes you don't have any choice. Sometimes you don't get any offers or you get one offer and you have to take that offer if you want the book to see the light of day. If you're lucky, you might get a couple of different opportunities and publishers to choose from. And now you're working with an editor. Now you're going back and forth and you're talking to these editors to find out, okay, which one of you understands this book the way I want to write it? That's mm. really key. And and I remember when I was trying to sell this book, I remember there was one publisher that you know we were in New York talking to and, you know, they were just kids. I'm sorry. I hate to be, you know, I hate, I hate to be ageist about it. But I mean, they were in their early 20s, which meant that they, Ricky had been retired, what, 10 years before they'd even gotten into the business. So they'd never seen him play. And they, you know, they were sort of was like, yeah, we would love to do the book. It's a great publisher. Let's go. Can we have this book in seven months? I'm like, yeah, no, you can't. It's not going to work right. that way. This one's going to take a lot more work. So that piece of the detail really is it's sort of pre-preparation it's mm -hmm. you need to find a publisher that understands you and understands your vision for the book if you don't you're going to have a long hard slog on every single page if you deliver a book that they don't want or you know or they're expecting a book you have no intention of writing right um back to the book um a a am I right in saying Pamela Henderson, Ricky's wife, was the reason this book started? She's the reason the book started, and she's the reason the book didn't fail. Um, I don't believe the book failed. Uh, yeah, when we were in 2014, I was to make a long story short, 2014, we were at Hank Aaron's 80th uh, birthday party at the Smithsonian in D.C., and his portrait was being unveiled. And so I was, it was, uh, I was humbled enough to be asked to. Uh, sit with Henry on stage and do a, a talk to the audience and it was unreal it was an unbelievable hmm. just being up there with Henry um, because I had written a biography of Henry in 2010 called The Last Hero A Life of Henry Aaron and so I was asked to sit up there with Henry and we did this amazing talk and it was and what was amazing about it was being with him because it was always amazing being with him but also the audience was full of Hall of Famers and so you look in the audience and there's Jim Rice and there's Robin Yount and and there's Ricky and, and there's Ozzie Smith and all these guys are there. 
And um, we went to the gala later that night, and that was the first time I was introduced to Pamela. And she said, you know, I'd like you to do for my husband what you did for Henry Aaron. And I'm like, well, I didn't do anything for Henry Aaron. <laughs> um, Henry Aaron is, uh, stands alone. He didn't need my help. But it was the first time that the idea of maybe Ricky as a, as a future subject came up. And then in this book, Ricky didn't want to talk. This is not an authorized biography. This is an unauthorized biography. Ricky sat down with me for a few sessions and then Ricky changed his mind and sort of acted as though he wasn't sure it was a book, even, you know, that it was you know, a book instead of an interview and uh, like for, uh, you know, for a, an article. And even though I have him on tape telling him it's a book um, <laughs> and then he just didn't want to talk anymore. But Pamela kept talking to me. Pamela was committed to Ricky's greatness. She was committed to him being somebody who was respected for what he did on the field. I really, to be perfectly candid with you, I don't really think Ricky cared one way or the other. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think Ricky was interested in legacy. I think, you know, I tried to explain to him, I remember telling him that, hey, the stories that we remember are not always the most important stories. The people we remember are not always the best players. The things we remember are the stories that get repeated. And no matter how good you are, if those stories don't get repeated, especially as a like, Ricky, you haven't swung, swung a bat in damn near 20 years. So if at the major league level, and so if those stories don't get retold, you'll have a new generation and future generations of people who have no recollection of you and no context of you. They'll just see you as in, in, in numbers, but they're not, you're not going to get to go along in the future. And I don't think that really had a whole lot of effect, but that was my motivation as well. And that was Pamela's motivation. And so I was really grateful to her because with the world shutting down as well, because that was the other challenge for this book, was that you thought, because Ricky played 25 years, he played for nine teams, you're thinking you could go down to Dunedin and walk into the Blue Jays clubhouse or go up to Winterfest, which is what I did to go talk to, uh, to, talk to the Blue Jays in the 93 team and the 92 rivalry and the, and the 89 rivalry. Hmm. Um, you think you're going to walk into the clubhouse because he had a gazillion teammates and just get Ricky story after Ricky story after Ricky story, and then the world shuts down. There's no access. Right. And so without those close contacts, without being able to call Pamela all the time, without being able to call Dave Stewart, without being able to call Eckersley and talk to some of those folks, then I don't. Then this book doesn't happen because the access just disappeared once the pandemic hit. Speaking of the uh, the Great Migration in Oakland, I, I think Nate uh, and you just talked about Toronto. Nate uh, Nate has a question that relates to that. Yeah, how uh, one, one player, one sort valuable source. He didn't play for the '92 and '93 Blue Jays, but er, in a sort of slightly earlier to that was Lloyd Mosby. No, I'm uh, a shaker. Mm -hmm. Yeah, how how <laughs> how essential was Lloyd Mosby, who by the way was my favorite player when I was about ten years old? No, that uh, was great. Yeah, to capturing the setting he and Ricky Henderson grew up in in Oakland, and I guess no, the 1970s. He's great. And, he, and and it, he, I just love. You know, let's just go back a quick second. When I was working on the Hank Aaron book um, on Last Hero, I, ha I had three major problems. Uh, problem number one was that I was born in 1968 and Henry was born in 1938. And therefore, y it's a real mistake to try to place the worldview of somebody built, you know, born in 68 on somebody who was, somebody who was born in the Great Depression. Um, the second problem I had was that I was born in Boston and Henry was born in Mobile. And so, of course, those folks down there aren't really going to trust you if you're, you know, a northerner coming down into the deep south to talk to people about, you know, about history. They don't think you get it. They think you're down there to distort them. 
then of course the third thing was was that Henry was you know when he retired I was seven years old I never saw Henry Aaron play I don't have any institutional memory in my mind of seeing him move and seeing him run and seeing him Ricky had it was totally different Lloyd Mosby was one of my guys I loved watching Lloyd Mosby play Jesse Barfield and those guys and all those Blue Jays guys I remember watching them against the Red Sox obviously um being able to connect with Lloyd and talking to him about what it was like on a daily basis being in Oakland, what it was like being a kid in the 1960s in Oakland with the Black Panthers and all of that upheaval taking place and and being in an environment where there were so many good players. You've got Ricky and Mosby and Gary Pettis and Dave Stewart all on the same Little League team. I mean, the level of talent is unreal. So one of the things that, that Lloyd did for me that was really useful, one, he was available. You could text him, call him anytime. He was always available. He was great. The other thing he did that was he really painted a picture about what that was like in a more personal level because Ricky had shut it down. And Ricky did the worst thing for me that you could possibly do to somebody writing a biography. Not only did Ricky not talk to me, but at one point Ricky went and told all of his people, hey, there's a guy writing a book on me, do not talk. And, and luckily, Lloyd and Pettis and those guys continued to talk. So he was instrumental in trying and to help me understand what that was like. And the reason why I brought up the Henry Aaron stuff was if you don't have these people who are willing to help you, then your books can't make it because you don't have that memory by yourself. You need people to, to explain to you what those times were like and what that feeling was like. And Mosby was fantastic because he could tell you about his own determination. He was a number two pick overall, talking about getting cut every year on the Little League teams because he wasn't at, at the other guys' levels. Can you imagine that? Hmm. Um, <laughs> and, I mean, Nate, I don't know if you're going to ask uh, the great migration question Oh, I'm later. sorry. I was going to – I'm sorry. No, no, totally no. no and then, yes, ahead, one of the things that Mosby was really terrific about was I wanted to connect these guys to – the Great Migration. Because whenever we talked about Mobile, like when I was working on the Henry book, everybody just talked about it like it was a coincidence that, you know, that Henry was from Mobile and Willie McCovey was from Mobile and Double Duty Radcliffe and Satchel Page were all from Mobile and Henry would joke about it and go, oh, it's just something in the water. And they would do the same thing in Oakland that you had Veda Pinson and Kurt Flood and Frank Robinson all in the same outfield. And you had Ricky and Mosby. And, and, but when you start looking at where these guys really came from, they all came from Arkansas, Texas, and Louisiana. And so now, you know, we talk about how the Great Migration shaped, you know, D.C. and how it shaped Chicago and how it shaped Detroit and L.A., but we never really talk about it in terms of sports. Hmm. The Great Migration shaped Oakland sports. And so talking to Lloyd about that, about the memory of the Elaine massacre in in Elaine, Arkansas in 1919, even for Mosby, who was born much, much later. He was born in 59, I think. And so how this all affected him and affected his family and how, you know, how one of the reasons why they left Arkansas was because his sister was, you know, wasn't of the personality to take a whole bunch of that segregation stuff and, and be docile about it. They're like, yeah, we had to save her life. We had to get her out of here. So all that stuff, that richness, all comes from the interviews and people's willingness to talk about their stories. And that's really what this is all about. And it's so difficult these days because today you've got these athletes who um, feel like they're being exploited by media and they want to control their own stories and they don't want to talk about anything unless they're in complete control of it. We are trying to preserve 
their history and trying to preserve our own history. And so it was sitting there at the Rogers Center and interviewing Lloyd Mosby about Oakland and and his family coming from Indian country in Oklahoma and settling in Arkansas and then moving to Oakland was just one of the, one of the joys of this book. Ricky took the game personally, and it would appear to me in reading this that you took that same approach in writing this. And and I say that in the sense that it's there. There's a definite edge to the book. I mean, you you you'll call out a writer, let's say in New York. Um, there, you know, you you'll call out the way Ricky was covered. Um, and and then there's also elements where you know you will go and you know boost up, let's say, like a female writer like Kim Boatman and make sure she's recognized for her perspective. And she's not the only one. So would you say that you took took writing this book personally in the same way Ricky took the game personally? No, I take everything I do personally. And I think that one of the things that we do, and I don't mean personally like I was offended by it. I think that I viewed it more like times are changing. Times are different. And I think that we spend so much time, we spend so much time talking about the athletes that we don't really talk about our own world. And I'm talking about the press box. Who's telling the story is as important as the story itself. Where are they coming from? What do they know? Mm -hmm. What do they know about the subject? Do they care about the subject? Are they... Are they an ally or, you know, threat or menace to the subject or are they neutral or whatever? I mean, you, mm-hmm. we, I don't, I don't take anything at face value when you're, when you're doing the reporting. And, and as I was saying, the reason why I was making this analogy to the challenges that I was having with the Hank Aaron book, I saw Ricky play for almost his entire career. I read all those news stories. I remember Ricky. So, so you are bringing a piece of this, of, you're bringing a piece of yourself to the writing, of course, but it's true. I mean, I find that the one of the reasons why this was such an interesting book for me is that it completes a trilogy for me of the 20th century and sports, which is the the first wave is the is the immigration era where you have these, you know, you have these kids coming in from Europe, the children of the industrial revolution, whether they were the Jews or the Poles or Italians or Irish or whomever, they become americanized by by sports. And then the second wave of it is you have the integration era where black people are now present. Because let's not forget, no matter what we say about baseball, baseball was the first American institution to integrate, integrated before schools, before the military, before corporate America, before all of it. And so this is the beginning of the civil rights movement, really, through baseball. And then, of course, the third is what this book is about, which is about money. Yes, Ricky Henderson took everything personally because Ricky defined himself by money. And this third era is the free agent era. And after I finished my second book, uh, Juicing the Game, back in 05, I wanted to tackle this. This was the period that I was really interested in. How sports changed after the Peter Seitz decision when now the players weren't making 10, 15 grand. Now they were making 10, 15 million. How does it change? What happened to the relationship? And publishers didn't want it. Publishers thought it wasn't a happy ending. They thought that fans were going to be turned off by the money and the distance between the players and themselves these days. And that's what Ricky's all about. Ricky, you start looking at the players. It's fascinating to me that Henry Aaron topped out his career at $240,000 in 1976. In 1979, Ricky's making 17000 when he comes into the big leagues. Three years later, he's making eight hundred. And so the, you go through the day by days and you see how bitter people were about the players suddenly making this unbelievable amounts of money. And Ricky is one of those guys. You could have done this about Ricky or Nolan Ryan or Reggie or whomever, 
But Ricky's one of the guys who's like, I'm not going to apologize for what I'm worth. I'm not complaining. I'm not comparing myself to the plumber or the electrician out there. I'm comparing myself to the guy who's playing in center field who's making more money than me. I'm comparing myself to Mike Schmidt or Jim Rice or Dave Steeb or whomever. I want my money. And this really creates a great deal of animosity. People didn't like Ricky. And that, you know, because of that, he was not afraid to go out and say, here's what I'm worth. And people were turned off by that, especially because fans view it as you're playing a kid's game. And so part of what this book is really all about is how Ricky went from one of the most disliked players, no matter how talented, from one of the most disliked players in the game because of his, his demeanor to how by the end of his career, people treated him like he was this national heirloom um, telling these funny Ricky stories. And now he's this national treasure in this combination of Satchel Paige and, and Yogi Berra. But when you go back to the early years, and especially with all of the labor strife where there's a strike and a lockout and a lockout and a strike, and here's Ricky complaining about, you know, he wants $1.2 million, but he was only offered 950000 that, you know, this is really sort of the, the real bitterness in, in the early 80s. And now people don't even blink that, you know, Juan Soto turned down $400 million. <laughs> and and how, how much... Uh... Did I think those evolving economics of baseball where, you know, a player goes to arbitration and the team goes, well, you didn't do this and you didn't do that. How did that maybe influence the decisions Ricky Henderson made about how he was going to play when he starts to develop? It turned it turned Ricky. People call Ricky a mercenary, but Ricky's like, yeah, well, this process is mercenary. You tell us that 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 money makes the world go around, but you're going to get mad at me for wanting money. And especially in arbitration where. Arbitration was always a, a, a either or proposition. It wasn't a mediation. The ownership picked one number, the player picked another number, and an arbiter decided which number was the number uh, that the player was going to receive. And, and Ricky was one of these guys who was really embittered. And it's a great, I just love the Mike Norris line in there where, because Ricky was just so, he took arbitration so personally that I did all of these things and you're going to try to, you're going to try to make a case that I'm not good enough. I mean, that is fuel for Ricky. You want to talk about taking some coal and shoveling it into the engine. That's what made Ricky go. You're going to tell me that I'm not worth what I'm doing out here. And even though it wasn't a pay, it wasn't a pay cut. You were either going to make a lot or make a lot more. That was Mike Norris's position. He says, hey, I don't I never took arbitration personally. For me, I was either going to wake up rich or richer. <laughs> yeah, of course, Mike Norris was a pitcher or a teammate with uh, Ricky's an Oakland, a pitcher who had a 22 win season playing for Billy Martin. I wanted, but when I was asking about Ricky changing his style, I wanted to ask about the influence that a coach with the Yankees, Willie Horton, had on him when Ricky got to New York and suddenly he's, he's hitting, goes from like nine home runs a year to about 25. Yeah, 100%. And that's all, you know, they, they have a name for it today. And you've heard it. They call it launch angle. Back then, they didn't call it anything. Uh, yeah, Ricky, it was this great moment with the Yankees where you've got those monsters at the batting cage, Don Baylor and Mattingly and Winfield, and these guys are just crushing the ball. And Ricky's pretty damn strong, but Ricky's like, how come my ball's not going out? Ricky's hitting line drives up the middle and, hitting, you know, he's hitting rockets, but they're not going anywhere. And, and Willie Horton, who was brought in by Billy Martin to be, yes, this is a true story, he was brought in to be the Yankees' tranquility coach <laughs> so they brought him in and, and and he sat down with ricky and they went out to the cage and he was trying to change ricky's swing telling him look you need a little bit more of an uppercut to get that ball out of here and all of a sudden you know at first it really didn't work 
and Ricky, if you look at Ricky's strikeout totals and you go from 85, 86, 87, they went up, but then, but so did the power. And it really turned Ricky into the type of threat. One of the reasons why he was so mad at the A's when they fought during arbitration was that the, uh, the A's argued that, yeah, Ricky was great and all that, but he didn't hit enough home runs. Now Ricky's hitting the ball out of the ballpark, and now you've got this guy who's not only going to steal 100 bases, but he can also take you out of the park in, the, in his first at bat. 81 career leadoff home runs. All of that comes back to to Willie Horton altering his swing back in 85. And it shows you the, you know, the attitude at the time too, right? I mean, even as a fan, I remember you're, you're looking at power. You're not looking at on base uh, as a casual fan. And I can imagine that probably offended him when, when he's getting, you know, maligned for, yeah, you know, you didn't, you know, uh, hit home runs, but he says, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a run scorer. That's my job. That was a great quote in the book. I'm not a base dealer. I'm a run scorer. Well, that's Ricky's issue. And he's like, well, what's the difference between driving them in or scoring them? I mean, yeah. why is one valued over the other? And, and it, I really love that point because it, it, when we think about this, it is true. You know, we have to remember and you don't want to sound too academic about it, but you do have to remember this is a business and decision, business decisions are being made about what we're choosing to compensate. And we compensate home run hitters. And I talk about this all the time. Whenever you see a guy getting a big free agent contract, the question is going to be to the fan. You got to be hitting the ball over the fence. That's what we equate money to. You don't look at Ricky and go, oh, OK, well, he's worth the most money in the game because because of all of his advanced metrics. I mean, the front office may look at it today. Billy Bean told me that today you wouldn't be able to pay Ricky enough. He would be Mike Trout today. But of course, Mike Trout got his $400 million. But it's it's interesting when you think about it to the fan. If you get big money, that ball's got to go over the fence. And and Ricky was constantly fighting. And when he finally was paid the most in the game back in 89, when he finally got his big contract, one of the things that really, really pleased him was it was like a victory for the little guy. See, you don't have to be a primary home run hitter to get the most money in the game if, if, if you're me. And he was constantly comparing himself to what everybody else was making. And money, money is the center of this book in so many ways because you're talking about whenever I work on a project, I'm always asking, okay, what is the coal made of? If you're looking at you know, taking that shovel and pouring the coal into the engine, what makes this subject go? And for Ricky, it's money. Ricky was motivated by money. Who was getting it? And how come he wasn't getting as much? And if you look at his career, throughout his career, most of his battles were over compensation. Now, I'm glad we're talking about Ricky, the ball player, because I know uh, probably people listening off the top uh, that aren't necessarily fans of the literature portion are, are probably saying, hey, you're getting too heavy into the business and, and the process. Um, but this is for the, the you know part of this interview that you know focuses on Ricky, the ball player, and is it safe to say Ricky, uh, as a ball player, revolutionized the leadoff spot in the same way maybe Bobby Orr did to playing defense in hockey? Ooh, boy. Yeah. You know, yeah. I never like to compare Bobby to anybody, <laughs> but my favorite player growing up in Boston. Um, you know, people have said to me in interviews, you were asking earlier about what questions I've been getting on this book tour. And people have said, what's Ricky's legacy? And I've said periodically, I, I'm not sure he has one. I used to think he had one, because if we're going to use the term properly, we're not really talking about accomplishments. We're talking about what you created behind you. What, you know, what's the parrot? Are you the paradigm shift? That's legacy. And 
I used to think so because then there was the Vince Coleman's and the Harold Reynolds's and the Omar Moreno's and all these other guys, Tim Raines, that 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 was a piece of the game. And the Kenny Loftons came after Ricky. And then it stopped. They don't steal bases. I remember talking to J.P. Ricciardi about this back in the day when he was the GM of the Blue Jays. And, uh, you know, the the hit and run, no, 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 no. The getting runners over, no, no. I remember J.P. told me specifically, give up outs to score runs. We don't do that anymore. And this was 99, 2000, somewhere in there, a little later when J.P. was GM. And it's morphed even beyond that. Now stealing bases are too much of a risk. So when you talk about legacy, Ricky's a unicorn now. I mean, he was a unicorn before because he was so damn good, but now he's a unicorn because they don't even do what he did. And so the legacy piece may be there in terms of the leadoff guy hitting with so much power, you know, the Charlie Blackmans of the world. And, you know, you put Aaron Judge, who's six foot seven, you put him in the leadoff spot. You know, and so that, that, that may be a legacy of Ricky's where that immediate power blast is something that is just going to jumpstart an offense. But in terms of the the guy who is going to steal bases and who's going to run and, and be that leadoff spark plug and really affect the bases, the game is way too risk averse now. They just don't do it. I remember talking to, to uh, you know, to uh, where was I? I was in uh, in D.C. right before. I'm sorry, West Palm with the Nationals, and um, you know, and the Nationals talking to Bob Boone and these guys, they want an 86 or 87 percent success right, when you're stealing bases. And Ricky stole 80 percent for his career. So are you saying that even Ricky and his ability to steal bases isn't good enough for today's game? That they're valuing. You know what do they what do they always say? You know they they're valuing um, they're valuing accuracy over volume, which slows the game down. And so where is a Ricky Henderson in today's game? He's much more power emphasis over speed, and it's to do that is really not to have a Ricky Henderson. So it's going to be really interesting as the future rolls on to see if baseball has an interest in the type of player that Ricky Henderson was beyond the power, because. A Ricky Henderson with power but no speed is not quite Ricky Henderson. Now there there were knocks against Ricky, uh, which you go to great lengths to kind of contextualize or give balance to. Um, are you know I, the the one you know what stands out to me is when you put in the the part about his teammates in Oakland after he left and went to New York. They're kind of saying, "Hey, listen, we took a hit to set the table for him to steal." And, and that type of thing. Were there were any of the knocks against him justifiable? A lot of them were. I mean, let's face it. I mean, I think, I think one of the things that I'm trying to do, that anyone who's trying to do these types of projects, you're trying to create a proper appraisal. And Ricky's not a, no angel. He's not perfect. He's absolutely not in the same category as somebody like a Henry Aaron where you look and go, oh, I've never said a bad word about him. Ricky has all kinds of flaws. I mean, and Ricky as a teammate, look, Ricky was very much willing to withhold services if he didn't get what he wanted. And, and this player, you know, drove him, drove his teammates crazy sometimes. They didn't deny his talent. You, no one can deny Ricky's talent. You could certainly deny how he went about his business in terms of whether or not it was detrimental to a team. And, and Ricky... I remember one time having this debate with Bob Ryan when Bob was talking about, um, think of how good Ricky would have been if he actually showed up to play. 
And I've always disagreed with that. I never thought that was a fair criticism of Ricky. I thought it was a fair criticism to say, think of how his career would have been different had he had a different demeanor, because a lot of times he wore out his welcome because teams were just tired of, of him. But I don't, how can you look at a guy who's got 3,000 hits, 2,000 walks, 2,000 runs, and 1,400 stolen bases and say he should have been a better player? It's just more, it was just more the way that Ricky carried himself. Teams weren't used to that. And Ricky, in a lot of ways, to me, has been vindicated that, you know, when Henry, I'm sorry, when Henry and Willie Mays and those guys were playing, if you were going to be an outfielder at Major League Baseball, you were expected to play 150 games. Willie Mays played. 150 games, 13 straight years. And some of those years were in the polo grounds where it was, what, 496, 502 to dead center? <laughs> I mean, Ricky got killed for taking days off. And although he played the most physical game, he's constantly being, you know, leaping into the dirt and having leather slapped on him, going, diving back to first and the whole thing. He knew what his body could do. And if you look at the way they treated players back then, Ricky would have never made it. He would have burnt out within eight or nine years. Look at the numbers. Look at Tim Raines' numbers. Look at Vince Coleman's numbers. Look at Don Mattingly's numbers. Look at the guys who were playing 162 games every single night. They didn't make it. Ricky played 25 years. So Ricky's vindicated. And now, today, we talk about load management for baseball players. I mean, that's, that is a little different. Ricky averaged about 135 games a year and still got 3,000 hits. So to me, I don't look at Ricky as, well, just imagine if he had played more. I look at it and go, gee, how much better would Hank Aaron or Willie Mays have been if they'd gotten a little bit of rest? We, we know the, the term load management. I think it, it just exploded here, you know, in Kawhi, and we're in Toronto. Kawhi obviously. Leonard. Sure. Kawhi Leonard. Uh, and now with George Springer. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, so um, the, you know, you talk about coal and the engine. Um, Ricky being singularly focused is seems to be a big part of that coal theme throughout the book. Um, how did that play out? Um, you know, him being singularly focused with the different managers he had and their goals of winning. Yeah, I think that in Ricky's case, clearly when you're looking at a player, there's no question when Ricky Henderson's on your team, you're a better team. And I don't think Ricky... With, I mean, obviously, there's a big difference. There are two managers who are in Ricky's world that are front and center. One is Tony LaRusse, and the other one's Billy Martin. Billy Martin is the most important manager in Ricky's life. And part of the reason is, is that when you think about your own job and you think about your own life, how many bosses have we had that just said, go out and do what you do best? Usually, there's all these different rules about when you can steal and when you can and what you can do and what you can't. Most times for all of us, a job is a job. You're doing their work. You're doing what they want you to do. But every now and then, there's somebody who recognizes you've got a special ability and they want you to succeed your way and not theirs. And that's what Billy Martin was for Ricky. Billy knew how good Ricky was. Billy knew what Ricky could do. And, and Billy let Ricky play. Even though he didn't give Ricky the green light all the time, he created a game for Ricky that allowed Ricky's best to come out. And that was very, very different from a bunch of other managers in baseball who had all these different rules about when you could steal and when you couldn't. Billy allowed Ricky to become a superstar by staying out of his way. And then, of course, you get to Tony La Russa, who in some ways is the exact opposite in that he knows how good Ricky is, but Tony was extremely rigid, and those two never really got along. They... They won despite each other. I need you, you need me, but we're not tight. Very, very different relationship. 
And with Ricky Henderson now, Neil and me, like in the in the late eighties, we're you know ten year old kids, and the Yankees didn't win. We didn't see the Yankees in the playoffs until I guess we would have been seniors in in high school. Uh, what transpired with Ricky Henderson when he was with the Yankees that kind of fueled him when he got back to the playoffs with Oakland in nineteen eighty nine, uh, just dismantling the Blue Jays and <laughs> yeah, and one such. of the the great postseasons of all time. I think the biggest thing was, was that when I was working on this book, the one thing, and Lloyd Mosby was one of the guys who was one of the first guys to say it. And I remember we're sitting there and, and I keep calling it Skydome in Rogers Center. It's okay. During, you can, you can call it Skydome. We, we still call it Skydome. <laughs> during Winterfest. And Shaker told me, you know, Mosby was like, listen, people will tell you that Ricky was football first and didn't really care about baseball. That's a lie. Here's what Ricky really cared about. Ricky cared about competition. It didn't matter if we were playing jacks, ping pong, baseball, basketball, football. If Ricky was on the field, Ricky had to win. And that was, in a, was a great interview because Dave Stewart told me the same thing and Gary Pettis told me the same thing. And all the guys who grew up with Ricky, when they first talked about Ricky, they talked about competition. And then you look at the New York years and all they talk about with him is how he didn't want to compete. So you've got this guy that everybody knows is a driven competitor. And yet when he gets to the biggest market in the world and for sports and baseball, at least he gets to the biggest market in the country and they're concentrating on his lack of desire. So here we go. You create this reputation as, for Ricky, as a guy who puts up big numbers, but he's not a winner. And if you come to New York and you're not a winner, that stays with you for your whole career. And to ask Dave Winfield, I mean, he had to come to Toronto to finally, you know, win a championship and be considered a winner. And that went away. But it, when he was in New York, Dave Winfield busted his ass in New York, but didn't win. That didn't really stick to Mattingly, but it stuck to Ricky and it stuck to Winfield. And so, you know, Bill Madden wrote this column in New York saying, why does it always feel like when you watch Ricky Henderson that you get a marvelous performance, but you still feel cheated? So Ricky leaves New York with this label that you're not a winner, that you're one of those guys. And in baseball, there are those guys, and we know them, who put up big numbers, but really not winners. They're not championship-level guys. And so bad news for Toronto when Ricky when Ricky gets back to the postseason he's got something to prove and boy did he prove it in that 89 postseason because he was he was traded uh in this in the like June June or 21st 89 he gets traded back to Oakland and it's fascinating the the next stage of the next 18 months is some of the greatest baseball that's ever been played because Ricky's got something to prove Ricky number one they're calling him a loser, that he's not a winner. He's a guy who puts up numbers but can't win. Okay, check. He hasn't been to the postseason since 1981 during the strike season. People had forgotten all about that. So the desire to get back to the postseason, strike two, strike three, that you know to be able to perform as the guy because now Ricky wants his money. His contract is also up. That's another motivation for him. And so all of those things he pours into – the into the Toronto series and Mosby told me this great story about how after he's tearing the Blue Jays apart in the first two games they're about to play at Skydome and you got the catchers 
you know, you got Ernie Witt back there talking about, oh, we got to beat his ass. We got to hit him. We got to knock him down. And Mosby is like, that's really not going to affect Ricky. If you throw the ball at Ricky, he's going to give it to you three times worse. And and the Blue Jays players were like, ah, you're just saying that because you guys grew up together. You, you know, you're his homeboy. So that's the reason you don't want us to hit him. And he's like, and Mosby was like, I'm telling you, if you <laughs> want to try to dust Ricky, go ahead, but do it at your own peril. That type of stuff does not affect him. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and as I remember, he ran wild in the two games in Oakland, and then I think in the fourth game in Toronto, he, he turns it around and hits two home runs. And hits so. two bombs, and it's just, <laughs> I mean, it's really uh, true. And, and Pamela talked about that growing up, and she was like, yeah, because you know, those two have known each other since high school. She was talking about how she'd just never seen an athlete who could just bend the sport to his will, that whatever the game was when he started cranking, when he was really into it, and Eckersley said the same thing. I love the way because Eckersley has his own language. When Ricky put his nose in it, you know, he put his nose in it. You know what I'm saying? He puts his nose in it. There's nobody better. And what he means by that is when he's digging in and he's fearless because you couldn't intimidate Ricky. You know, you throw it under his nose. Fine. He'll hang in there. There are some guys where, you know, you start buzzing them and dusting them and throwing it at them. Then they're going to back off a little bit on that outside corner because they don't want to get hit with the ball. But you do that with Ricky. Ricky's going to dig in even tighter. And Howard, it's a different sport. He played a different sport, but uh, how, how you can tell me if I'm way out in left field on this, uh, no pun intended, but how similar, you know, I think of another great Hall of Famer in football who was often judged on his on his demeanor and not how hard he competed and what he and what he did. But how are there some are there similarities maybe between how Ricky Henderson was perceived in baseball and maybe how the great wide receiver uh, Randy Moss was sometimes perceived in, in football? That's a great comp. Interesting. You're the first one who's made that comp. Yeah, in some ways, in, in, in some ways, and Randy Moss never won a championship, but I think that, I think the difference was between them. I think Randy Moss, Randy Moss's talent was so obvious because in that sport, you know, mm. he's a one-on-one -on -one guy. When you're out there outside, you know, that confrontation between wide receiver and cornerback is, is so obvious. It's a win or lose proposition. And in Ricky's case, obviously, batter pitcher is the most intense confrontation in sports. It's what starts the game. But I don't think people, I think people saw Randy Moss from day one in that Thanksgiving game against the, uh, against the Cowboys. And I think they knew they were watching something special. I think Ricky sort of, even though everyone knew how good he was, I don't think people recognized how good he was because back then stigma wise when we looked at baseball we didn't look at leadoff guys as that as impact guys we didn't you know they were table setters they really weren't the guy and then you looked at ricky you know even joe morgan hit third lou brock hit third and second third in the order so i just think that what really snuck up on people in the mid 90s and then later on was oh my goodness look at these numbers that he was compiling, and before you knew it, you're like, wait a minute, he has created something that I don't think anyone had really anticipated. I mean, they all knew he was a great base dealer, but there's a way in baseball, and we know how people talk, that they sort of diminish certain skills over others. And whereas it was amazing he was the greatest base dealer, I think that people didn't view that necessarily as, as entree to the best ever conversations. But then when you start adding the power to it, and then you start adding the on-base to it, and then you start adding the numbers to it, now you got something different. 
If you go back to what Ricky did to start the ninth inning comeback against the Phillies in game six of the 93 World Series, would you say that's the case in point of what made him the most lethal leadoff player of all time? No, 100%. 100%. I mean, the, and, and, and he's he's that guy who and that's why he played so long that ricky's attitude was always that at some point somewhere i can do something to hurt you and somewhere along the line i'm going to do something and it's gonna be a game changer and his ability even when he couldn't hit anymore he could still work a pitcher and that was happening fortuitously at a time when suddenly running up pitch counts was really important. You could make an argument that if that sort of money ball analytics attitude doesn't hit when it hits, Ricky doesn't even get to 3,000 hits because his average was dropping down into the 230s. So I think he only hit 227 with Toronto, or 214 with Toronto, and then he's hitting 236 with the A's. And so it really, you know, the ability for him to work a pitcher at a time when that skill was valuable probably added three or four years to his career yeah if you watch that at bat and go back on youtube and it's there it's 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 quite amazing because the jays are down two i believe and he just steps out of the batter's box right away mitch williams is you know off his game gets on first and if you hear i think it's tim mccarver i think is the color guy nate you might be able to correct yeah, me yeah it's sean Mc, sean mccarver and all all through the devon white at bat McCarver's just talking about how he's completely changed Mitch Williams' game because he can't. I think he says he he pushes him into a slide step instead of letting him do the leg kick because he'll steal if he uses the leg kick, and he's totally changed everything about how Mitch Williams is going to approach that inning. And we know what happened next with Joe Carter. Uh, Howard, I know uh, we've kept you for a while. We've got a few more questions, so we'll we'll run through those. Um, so thank you, by the way, for giving us this time. Uh, Nate, go ahead. Yeah. Now, Ricky, we've established and you've established that Ricky Henderson played baseball in his terms. But what what was sort of the, you know, aha light bulb moment for him when he when he to accept that when he went to the Hall of Fame, he would need to deliver an acceptance speech that redeemed him, I guess, in the eyes of the sports media who really he had nothing to prove to. But he felt he had. To well, do I think that. it was every I think it, it wasn't just sports media. It was sort of the public in a way, too. People were turned off by Ricky, and, and, and it's because we all expect when you succeed, we expect humility. That, okay, if you want to be brash while you're climbing the mountain, that's fine. But once you've reached the mountaintop, we're supposed to, we ex- the culture expects you to put the swords down and be gracious. And when you're doing your acceptance speech, you're expected to be gracious. And you're supposed to thank people who got you there. These are the cultural traditions. These are the expectations. This is the ritual. So Ricky breaks the all-time record, pulls the bass out, and says, today I'm the greatest of all time. And people <laughs> were just enraged. And so even though he was being completely consistent with what he had always been, you got Lou Brock standing right there who was considered one of the great gentlemen of all time in 1991. He flies out to Oakland which, by the way, was the second time he had done this because in 82, he was traveling when when Ricky broke his single-season record to be there. Very gracious thing to do. He didn't have to do that, especially in 82, the year the Cardinals win the World Series. They're they're a great team in their own right. And Ricky instead had the Muhammad Ali attitude that 
it ain't bragging if you can do it. All I'm doing is backing up what I'm saying. And when he said that, there were people in the A's dugout who were like, did he really just say he's the greatest of all time right in front of Lou Brock? And people were just go read the letters to the editor and the sporting news and in the local paper. They just thought he was so brash and gauche and classless. And he carried that. And Ricky told me, he says, the minute I said that, I knew I was never going to live it down. And that stayed with him, whether we're talking about the public attitude. It stayed with him when it came to card shows because suddenly his card wasn't as valuable. It came to him in terms of of endorsements and invitations to do things because Ricky had this prickly attitude about maybe he would show up and maybe he wouldn't show up. And so for all the people who wanted to celebrate him, he had to have a heart to heart with his team, with his people, you know, with his family and his advisors. And they were like, look, people don't like you and it's costing you money. And if you let people see the side of you that we get to see, they're going to love you because you really are a good person. You are a funny person. You are an engaging person. Let the world see this. You've already climbed the mountain. You've got all the records. You're going to the Hall of Fame. You don't have to be upset about get, not getting top dollar for everything. All of that is going to come if you let people see the good side of you. And so Ricky took that to heart. And by the time he gets to the Hall of Fame in 2009, he knows now he's got an opportunity to rewrite that. And so... When he gets to his Hall of Fame speech, people are waiting. You know, Hall of Famers, Eckersley told me that the Hall of Famers were waiting for him in front of all these other great Hall of Famers to say he was even better than them. And Ricky was telling me about how people thought I was going to make a fool out of myself. And they went there to see me make a fool out of myself. And so he sort of recognized that this was an important moment for him, not just because he was being immortalized with the greats, but this was a chance to also rewrite a lot of the stuff from 91. And that's why his speech was considered so great, where he finally said, today I consider myself humbled, <laughs> instead of saying, today I consider myself the greatest of all time. And, and and I found it interesting, too, that he would have been about 50 years old at this point, that he actually enrolls in a speech class at yeah, Laney, yeah, Laney College, college course. <laughs> to, to, to prepare. Well, like, he but once again, that's Ricky's competitiveness right there. He's expecting hostile territory. So he's preparing for hostile territory. He was expecting and I said that to him. I go, you took a college class. He goes, yeah, because they were all expecting me to make a damn fool out of myself. They were expecting me to fall on my face. And, and Ricky had a, a, you know, a, a reading issue. Was, you know, one of the things Jeff Eilson at the Hall of Fame was telling me was that to slow himself down, Ricky wrote his speech backwards. In the, you know, they put the speech backwards in the binder so he would just read it slowly, read each page, and then go back to keep him from sort of losing focus. You know, public speaking is not easy for him. And... He knew, you want to talk about someone who had a, a sense of the moment, he knew he had to nail that. And if he didn't, people would be talking about him in a negative way for the rest of his life. How, how symbolic is it that Moneyball comes out in 2003, bringing analytics to a mass audience, and that's the year Ricky retires? No, it's a big deal because it's the numbers that really did vindicate him. And, and that's the thing. And that's the, one of the things that people just don't, you know, that I that I thought was a really interesting piece of this of this book, which was, okay, 
when Ricky hit his 10th year in the big leagues, people weren't even talking about him as a guaranteed Hall of Famer. And, and, and he was, he had shattered an all-time record in, a, in almost in less than a dozen years. And people were not talking about him like a, a sure first ballot Hall of Famer. But by the time you get to the end and you just look at everything he did, because of the way people are viewing the sport, the way that the game is looking at advanced metrics, he's even better than people thought. And so it's one of the one of the interesting sort of intersections in his life. I mean, he's still going to the hall because of because of the stolen bases and because of the hits and everything else. But the reverence that came with that happened at a pretty fortuitous time. And, and Howard, I just wanted to s sort of sneak in as we're re winding down. Uh, some big sports news in the last few days is that Serena Williams is retiring. I recall, I believe you wrote a picture book bio of her and Venus Williams. I did in 2018. Yeah, what was the challenge? What was the challenge of of uh, putting them their careers into a context that a child uh, would understand? Well, and it was my first time doing it. I'd never written a children's book before, so it, the the hardest thing about writing a children's book is that when you really add it up, it's not that many words. So I'm like used to writing these. 150,000 word books and a children's book is, yeah, I think that book was maybe 800 words. Hmm. And so that's like a column. And so you have to sort of write to the, the story, but you're writing for a three or four year old. And it was really a fascinating, fun challenge to do. And the Williams sisters, I mean, I've said this constantly. Venus and Serena Williams are the greatest pair of siblings that, you know, North American sports has you know, has ever produced. I mean, you might want to put the house in there as a family. You know, there might be some other guys you want to put in there. You might want to throw the Mannings in there, possibly. But no one's done what they've done. And certainly nobody's done. I mean, they they went one, number one and number two in the sport in consecutive years. Um, so it's really a very, very high bar. And I don't think that's hyperbole to say that those two together have done something that nobody else, has, no other family has ever done. Um, Serena is just, I mean, the news of Serena pulling back is not a surprise. It's time. She's going to be 41 next month. Nobody gets to play forever. So I wasn't shocked by that. I was, I was somewhat surprised by the fact that she finally announced it because I sort of was betting that she and Venus were both going to just either play or not play. And then you would see them or not see them. I didn't think that they were going to do the farewell. But on second thought, it sort of makes sense from... Serena's standpoint, because Serena, Serena has things to say. And Serena is now in a stage in her life as a person where she is a statement maker. And when you read that essay in Vogue, some of the things that she's saying is, you know, some of the things she's saying are, are more, they're, they're not necessarily related to the retirement as much as the frustrations that she's had. In fact, I mean, even, even the biological frustrations that the men are allowed to have families while they're still playing and the women have to stop and then choose. And she's talking about the sort of existential unfairness of it all. And so it was really something listening to this as a, as a period. And, and, and the fact that she didn't really use the word retirement, I mean, I think that's branding in some ways, but I also looked at it in another way, which was her way of saying, don't expect me to don't expect to see me anymore but maybe you'll be pleasantly surprised if you do 
she may go play doubles at the U.S. Open or may play doubles in, at Australia or somewhere else. But yeah, this chapter is ending, and and it's been fascinating watching Rogers Cup. Uh, they still they don't even call it Rogers Cup anymore. It's a National mm, Bank Open, right? I get all my terms wrong up there. Um, hey, you know what? It, there's so many moving parts across the board. It's not so I don't blame you. I mean, exactly. I don't know what stadium, what team plays in anymore. Exactly right. But in, I, insert corporate name here. Field, exactly. You know? in, insert insert naming rights deal. <laughs> uh, yeah, I I just think that it's been it's been an un- unbelievable run, and it's been an incredible thing to watch, and we've all been spoiled, and we will continue to be spoiled because now that. It's not just Serena. Now that you see Nadal and Federer and Djokovic slowly winding down as well, that these rankings aren't going to mean what they used to mean anymore, which is why you're looking at the carnage up there on both the men and the women's side. The one, two, three, four seeds are all gone. Um, although Casper Ruud's still around on the men's side. It's, it's not going to be what it was where you, oh, you're the one seed, so you're going to the final, right? Not anymore. It's not a guarantee. And you will be there uh, later this month uh, in New York, I'm assuming? I will be in New York, yes. It'll be my first sporting event since the uh, pandemic. I haven't been to a live live game of anything and since w- since West Palm Beach before the shutdown with the Nationals and the uh, Astros at spring training. Will you be covering it as a journalist or going as a fan? Oh, this will be completely professional. It'll be work. Okay, this is the last thing I want to ask you. I know, uh, Howard, you're probably like, what the hell's going on up here in Canada? These guys have kept me for an hour. 35 minutes in Canada is an hour and six minutes in the United States. (laughs) That exchange rate, eh? No, this has been fun. It's not a problem at all. I want to close out with a Rickyism, and I want to preface this by what I said earlier, is that you... You know, you really explained that, you know, that these can take on a biting tone and sometimes they're real and there's this mix of facts. sometimes they're funny as hell, too. Let's not forget that. They're hilarious. So I because you did mention the one on MLB TV about uh, Ricky going down Spadina Avenue and and uh, during, you know, after the Joe Carter home run, I want to ask you another one that relates to the Blue Jays. And if you could tell the story about how he received his 1993 World Series ring after he left the team the following year and what happened to his bonus check. (laughs) bonus check um well that's the it's funny because post strike post 94 strike baseball needs to celebrate everything i mean goodness gracious they stopped the game in the 2003 world series for roger clemens who then didn't even retire he unretired immediately i remember (laughs) watching that game and i remember thinking are they really stopping the game on the road for a visiting pitcher this seems so pandering this isn't right. And then, of course, Roger Clemens came back the next year um, with the Astros. But pre-strike, baseball was really unsentimental about things. Ricky won the world, you know, wins the World Series with the Blue Jays in 93. 94, you know, do they wait till Ricky's on the field to present him his championship ring? No, they brought it to him in a box. Now they brought it to him in a box pre-game. Uh, a Blue Jays representative brings it over to him. You know, completely under the radar, hands him a box and a check. And the box had his World Series ring in it, and the check was his World Series share. And he puts the check in his in his warm-up pants. So he goes out and takes batting practice with, like, a check for $120,000 or whatever the dollar <laughs> amount was. He's taking BP with a $120,000 check in his back pocket. Goes into the... You know, the game starts and they call Bobby Aleo, one of the uh, the team trainer, and the um, 
one of the clubbies says, I think you want to see this. And Ricky's check was in his pants about to go into the wash. <laughs> and and they're in to, Oakland, right? At this time, he's about to wash a hundred and twenty thousand dollar check. <laughs> and, and, and sir, they were in. Was it? They were in. He was with Oakland at this point, right? And he, he was with Oakland. Yes, he's with right. the A's now. And so today it would be totally different. Today they would do something pregame, and they would see him on the field, and everybody would clap, and it would be this nice pageantry, and thank you for the memories, and they would put something up on the big board, and 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 try to make it all nice. But back then. Back then, old school baseball is like, yeah, well, you don't play for this team anymore, but here's your ring and here's your check. Thanks for playing. And then he, I think, didn't he hit a single too with the with the uh, check in his pocket? I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> there's no. that as well. Um, so no, um, that that that's great. Uh, we appreciate your time uh, today, Howard. Uh, the uh, thirty minutes in Canada is an hour in the states type thing. So. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it's been it's been great, and um, we look forward to uh, reading more from you in the future and uh, continued success with this book. No, it's my pleasure, and thank you. And I, it's not a problem. I'm just making fun. You know, I always <laughs> love doing stuff in Canada because you guys actually read. They're, they're really enjoyable interviews to do. Thank you very much. Thanks so much, Howard. Thank mm-hmm. you so thank much, you. Howard.